Well, good morning again, church. It's good to see everyone, and uh, morning to everyone uh, watching from home or even just in the fellowship hall. Uh, a few weeks ago, I watched the ESPN documentary on Lance Armstrong. You know, as I was kind of preparing this opening illustration, I realized that Aaron and Dustin had recently given illustrations on other ESPN documentaries, The, the Last Dance. So I guess the cat's out of the bag on what your pastors have been doing during the pandemic. Uh, but there's a lot that could be said about the story of Lance Armstrong. You probably know it, seven-time Tour de France champion, stripped of his titles and banned from the sport of cycling that he once ruled because of performance-enhancing drugs. But that really only captures like a small portion of the controversy surrounding Lance Armstrong because those accusations of performance-enhancing drugs pretty much plagued him for much of his career. But he always, always forcefully denied them. Now, we know now uh, by his very admission that all those denials were lies intended to preserve his image and his place on top of the sport. But for me, at least the, the saddest part of the story of Lance Armstrong is not that he just denied using performance-enhancing drugs, not that he just continually lied over and over again. I mean, that's not good. But he vilified anyone who so much as made an accusation or even hinted at the fact that he could be using them. He went out of his way to vilify them. He falsely accused them of lying, which was the very thing he was doing. He sought to destroy their reputations and in some cases even sought to destroy their livelihoods. So during the documentary, the filmmakers from ESPN take time to interview many of the people that he had crossed, that he had vilified over his career. And really, even all these years later, as you might expect, you can see evidence of the pain that he had caused them, of the hurt that it had caused. You know, some seemed to have largely forgiven him, others had simply tried to move on, but there was a few that it was clear that they still carried a great deal of bitterness over what Lance had, had done to them. And I think we can understand that bitterness. There's, there's some part of it that is understandable. These individuals had suffered unjustly at his hand. He caused them great pain. He was doing the very thing. He was being a hypocrite. He was doing the thing that he was accusing them of doing by lying. And it was all to protect himself. So you can understand that bitterness. Uh, but it's also sad because as Christians, we know how harmful bitterness is to give root to that in our heart and let it grow. We know that it doesn't just... Uh, it, it can ruin one's life. It can make you miserable. It keeps you in the same place that you were when the hurt was originally caused. And we know as Christians, we don't have to carry that kind of bitterness around. We know it's a work of the flesh, but that as new men and women in Christ, we can put it away and even love our enemies. So I don't know about you, but sometimes even when you see people just holding on to that bitterness, well, you have great compassion for them because you know it doesn't have to be so. You have great sorrow for them. So we know we can put bitterness away as Christians, but the question is how? Well, I think we find at least some of the answer in Psalm 52, which is our text for this morning. So go ahead and, and turn over there to Psalm 52 with me. And Psalm 52 is David's response to a period of unjust suffering in his own life. And so as I read Psalm 52 here in just a moment, remember that David's response that we have recorded here to, is a response to a particular time in his life a particular time when it would have been easy for him to lose heart. Would have been, it would have been easy to grow bitter. It would have been easy to doubt the Lord, but he reminds himself of God's steadfast love in the midst of this period, and in doing so, provides us an example to follow uh, when we face suffering, particularly unjust suffering. Uh, so let me read Psalm 52. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, 
David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So bear with me here because I have a fair bit of context to cover in this psalm because if you're anything like me, you read that introduction and you have no idea who Doeg the Edomite is. You don't remember all the particulars of this period in David's life. Uh, so if you will, turn with me to 1 Samuel 21. And even as you're turning to 1 Samuel, I'm going to give a little bit of context to that chapter. So 1 Samuel 21 is where Doeg makes his first appearance in the biblical narrative. And when we come to 1 Samuel 21, Saul is, king of, Saul is king in Israel. However, his reign has not been marked by faithfulness to the Lord. It's been marked by disobedience. And as a result of Saul's rebellion against the Lord, uh, God through Samuel has told Saul that the kingdom is going to be stripped from his hand and given to another. Well, that someone else was David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, David was chosen by God and anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. Uh, but as you probably know, he did not take the crown immediately. He entered a long period of waiting. And when we come to 1 Samuel 21, David is still waiting. But in contrast to Saul, David's period of waiting here is marked by both faithfulness to the Lord, and not just faithfulness to the Lord, but faithfulness to Saul. David serves Saul faithfully. But though David faithfully serves Saul and seeks his good, 1 Samuel records that Saul grew increasingly jealous of David and mainly because the people of Israel start to heap praises on David for his military success. His jealousy begins after David defeats Goliath and the people praise David more than they praise Saul. And Saul doesn't handle his jealousy particularly well. I don't know if you have ever done this in a fit of jealousy, but he took a spear and hurled it at David. Uh, he missed and his anger subsides for a while, but it returns after David once again defeats the Philistines and the people of Israel start to praise him. So Saul once again seeks to kill David only to have his son Jonathan uh, speak up in David's defense and talk him out of it. Uh, so it subsides again, but it comes back a third time uh, and it is not appeased this time. So Saul gets angry when David defeats the Philistines and gets praised again, there's a pattern. David's success just gnaws at Saul and leads him to become bitter and angry. So last week, Aaron called envy and jealousy gross and violent sins. And if you just want a picture of what that looks like, you know, just go read something of the story of Saul. It just gnaws at him over time. So this time when Saul's jealousy is aroused, David escapes with the help of his wife. Saul's anger is not appeased and David chooses to flee. And that's really where the story picks up in 1 Samuel 21. David flees from Saul and comes to the tabernacle at Nob, where Ahimelech is priest. 
Ahimelech is ignorant of all that is going on between David and Saul. He just knows Saul is king, David is his faithful servant. And so when David comes, he gives him aid in the form of the holy bread for food and the sword of Goliath for a weapon. But if you look at 1 Samuel 21, verse 7, uh, we see this inserted into the narrative. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, so at the tabernacle, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And that's all there is to say about Doeg until the next chapter, but it's a harbinger of, of things to come. It's a little bit of foreshadowing on the bit of the narrator. So turn over to 1 Samuel 22. So Saul is still seeking David in this chapter, and he hears that he has been discovered. And this is what happens starting in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait, as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So in response to this report, Saul summons Ahimelech and all the priests at Nob and accuses them of conspiring against him by aiding David. Well, Ahimelech truthfully pleads his innocence, and this is what he has to say to Saul in verse 14. And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Which is what Ahimelech believed and just so happens to be true. Uh, but we see Paul, Saul is, is unmoved, and we see his response starting in verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. In Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping." And that is the last we hear of Doeg the Edomite in Scripture until we come to Psalm 52. So with that context in mind, let's go back to Psalm chapter 15, and, or Psalm chapter 52, excuse me, and I have three points that I want to draw out. Uh, the first is a, a foolish confidence, so the foolish confidence of Doeg, a certain end, a certain end, and a quiet assurance. So first, we're going to look at a foolish confidence. So look again, starting in verse 1 of, of Psalm 52. 
Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So just a, a word of warning. This is gonna be my longest point, but I want to examine two things about Doeg, his, his boasting and his words. So, so bear with me. I know this is a point with two subpoints, but we are gonna examine the foolish confidence of Doeg by looking at his boasting and his words. So first, his, his boasting. And in verse one, we see David introduce really the central question, the central contrast and theme of the psalm. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Why do you boast of evil, Doeg? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. So it's the contrast between the wicked and those who trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. It's the fleeting triumph and success of those who do evil contrasted with the permanence, reliability, and surety of God's steadfast love towards the righteous, of his enduring care, faithfulness, and protection of his people. This question then that, that David poses to, to Doeg or to, poses rhetorically exposes the foolishness of, of Doeg's evil intentions. You know, David asks why he would boast since it's the Lord who's ultimately gonna prevail. You know, Doeg is a, a bit like the commander of a small troop of soldiers who wins a small victory while the leaders of his nation are simultaneously sitting down to sign the terms of surrender. It's a hollow boasting, it's a false boasting, it's a premature boasting. But the question I had as I was reading through this is well, why is it called boasting at all? If you recall from what we read of, of Doeg there in 1 Samuel, he doesn't really say much other than to report David's whereabouts to Saul. This isn't Goliath going out there and taunting the people of Israel day after day. Doeg isn't taunting David, he isn't taunting the people of God. So why does David say that Doeg is boasting? Well, I think the answer is that by setting himself against David, Doeg set himself against the Lord. And I think the very fact that the biblical authors, both here in Psalm 52 and back in 1 Samuel, go out of their way to highlight the fact that Doeg was an Edomite is intended to highlight this very point. You might recall that the Edomites were descendants of Esau, not Jacob. In other words, from their very beginning, they stand in contrast to Jacob or Israel, the people of God, the chosen people of God. And throughout their history, they proved to be a thorn in the side of the people of God. They proved to be a thorn in the side of Israel. And consequently, several of the biblical prophets prophesy judgment against Edom particularly Obadiah. Actually, if you look at just the first few verses of Obadiah, you'll see Edom is condemned for the same pride that seems to mark Doeg. And so these prophecies go on to be fulfilled as the Edomites are eventually driven from their land and, and really just disappear from human history. But by making it clear that Doeg was an Edomite, I think the biblical authors are making a point to identify him with the people who are opposed to God, who are a thorn in the side of the people of God. And like Edom, Doeg, by his actions, is essentially thumbing his nose here at the Lord. You know, it's hard to think of uh, a more direct way to set yourself against the Lord than to slaughter 85 priests of the Lord, or at least command, so, you know, either by Saul commanding it or by Doeg doing it. But that's exactly what Doeg did, along with all the residents of the city of Nob. It's an astounding level of arrogance that he displays. 
And so brothers and sisters, just before we move on, I want you to see that that's what sin is. Sin is arrogance, it is boasting against the Lord. Sin is rebellion against God, it's thumbing our nose at the creator of the universe and saying, we know better, I know better, or there is no God. When we sin, that's what we're acting like, we're acting like there is no God. In that sense, all sin is boasting. I just wanna ask, is that your view of your own sin? Do you see yourself as thumbing your nose at God when you sin? And Doeg is rebuked here, or at least questioned over his boasting. And so I wanna point out that I, I think biblically we see brothers and sisters that the clearest path to humility is just simple obedience. And we're to pray for humility, we're to desire humility, we're to seek humility, but we can do that by simply obeying the Lord. Don't thumb your nose at God. So we're gonna look at this a bit more in a minute, but verse seven tells us at least part of the reason Doeg was so arrogant. He trusted in his own riches and not the Lord. He had a foolish confidence, a, a misplaced confidence, a confidence in his own riches rather than a confidence in the Lord. And we find this description of the wicked in Psalm chapter 10, verses three through four. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Well, this is, this is Doeg. He does, not, he does not think there is a God. He's a, a little bit like a toddler who sits in his parents' lap to help drive the car into the garage. You know, that toddler thinks he is really driving. He thinks he's steering the car. He's oblivious to the fact that his father and mother can stop the car when they want. They can make the car move when they want. They will steer the car where they want to go. That toddler has a foolish confidence in his own abilities because he is ignorant of the one who is actually in control. Well, if Doeg truly believed there was a God who was fully in control, and if he fully believed in a coming judgment, there is no way that he would slaughter the priests of the Lord. You know, First Samuel doesn't paint the other servants of Saul who just stand by in a particularly positive light, but at least they had enough sense or enough fear of the Lord to refuse to kill these priests when Saul asked. But Doeg had no such qualms. He was a fool. And brothers and sisters, I think that should lead you to ask, where are you placing your confidence? What do your words, what do your actions, what do your emotions, what do the ways you spend your time on reveal about where you place your confidence? Do you often find yourself anxious or worried about the future? Do you find yourself bitter just holding on to, to past wrongs? Are you generous with your time and talents and, and resources? Where is your confidence? Because we see in Doeg where we place our confidence can have dramatic consequences on our actions and on our lives. And that's because it has dramatic consequences on our hearts. We can't put our confidence in something other than the Lord and not see it impact our hearts and then not see it impact our actions. And so we should always ask ourselves, where are we placing our confidence? When we see sin in ourselves, when we see ourselves thumbing our nose at the Lord, where am I placing my confidence? Where is my trust? And so that is Doeg's boasting. 
But I also want us to see Doeg's words, because it can be tempting to ignore someone like Doeg, who does something as evil as slaughter 85 priests of the Lord, uh, all the people who live in Nob, and just kind of dismiss him and fail to see any application to our own lives. Uh, but notice what David draws our attention to in verses 2 through 4. He doesn't draw our attention to Doeg's actions, as heinous as they are. He draws our attention to Doeg's words. Doeg is accused of plotting destruction, of deceit, of lying. But again, if we go back to the story in 1 Samuel, the only recorded words we have are him reporting David's whereabouts to Saul. So why are these charges laid at his feet? Again, I think the answer is because although he didn't speak an outright lie, David truly was at the tabernacle in Nob, he refused to speak what was right and true. He refused to speak what was righteous and just. And to see this, I think we have to rewind a bit just in the story. So remember, Doeg doesn't enter the scene until the third time, time number th three that tr Saul tries to kill David. So if we go back to the second time that Saul tries to kill David because he's jealous in 1 Samuel 19, we can read this starting in verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel." You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So I think the author of 1 Samuel intends us to see Doeg as a contrast to Jonathan. You know, when Saul wanted to kill David the time before, Jonathan, the king's very son, was willing to speak up in David's defense. He was willing to defend the cause of the righteous. He was willing to speak what was true, even if it wasn't what Saul wanted to hear, and even if it came at risk to himself personally. So we go back in, in 1 Samuel 19, you see in verse 1 that Saul had asked all his servants, presumably to include Doeg, to kill David. So when Jonathan replies, Doeg is there, he hears it, he hears Saul's desire to kill David, he hears Jonathan's response, and he sees that Saul's anger is appeased. So I think it's safe to assume then that when, when David showed up at the tabernacle in Nob, Doeg knew David had not sinned against Saul. He knew that David had only done good to Saul. He knew David had been faithful to Saul. And he knew David had been faithful to the Lord as well. So this report that we have recorded in 1 Samuel 22, this, this short time of speaking that Doeg has, it isn't simply an innocent report. When he is presented with an opportunity to defend David, he does not take it. You know, last week Aaron preached that the gospel is divisive and it forces us to take sides. Well, Doeg was presented with an opportunity to take sides here and he sided with evil instead of with righteousness. So when he gives this report to Saul, he's, 
He's feeding Saul's paranoia and jealousy concerning David. When Doeg answers Saul, he encourages Saul to believe the lies that Saul has been telling himself about David, things that Doeg knew not to be true. He encourages Saul to greater wickedness, and in doing so, as David puts it in Psalm 52, Doeg plots destruction and becomes a worker of deceit. And I think we see also here that, that Doeg's words, as we would expect, reveal his heart. It wasn't until after Saul offered fields and vineyards and commands of troops, or at least implied that he was offering those things, that Doeg decided to speak. He was out for his own personal gain. He trusted in the abundance of his riches. He wasn't interested in faithful service to Saul. He wasn't interested in service to David, certainly, or David's good. And he was not interested in honoring the Lord. He was only interested in his own reward. He was only interested in how he could get ahead. And this is why he, unlike Saul's other servants, agreed to kill the priest of the Lord. He refused to check Saul's wickedness. And he goes beyond mere words of destruction to acts of destruction as well. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And that epitomizes the foolish confidence of Doeg. His confidence was in earthly reward and his own success rather than in the steadfast love of the Lord. He boasts in his ability to drive the car of his life, forgetting that it is the Lord who is in control of history. I think as we sit here this morning, it's, it's really hard to recount the story of Doeg to see what David brings up in accusation against him and, and not think of our own cultural moment when the spotlight has been pointed at our nation's history of racial injustice. Yeah, we've reached this moment because there were those who were willing to overtly oppress and mistreat those who did not look like them. But we've also reached this moment because there were those who stayed silent in the face of this injustice and this wickedness, those who did not defend the cause of righteousness when given the opportunity we see the consequences, right? And we don't know all the reasons for this, but we do know as Christians that like Doeg, we are all tempted to place our confidence in our own earthly reward, in our own riches, in our own insert the blank, rather than in the steadfast love of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, you're, you're not required to speak up on social media over every issue of the day, but you should ask, where are you tempted to decide with the wicked instead of the righteous? Where are you tempted to stay silent in the face of injustice because it may benefit you? Is it over the issue of race? Where are the areas of your life where you're selfish and seek your own good? At work, are you content to let the reputation of a coworker unjustly suffer because it might benefit you? Are you willing to even speak what is true when you sin and admit wrong or do you seek to defend yourself instead of repent? Are you willing to risk a friendship like Jonathan or even really risk the relationship between a father and a son by lovingly confronting someone over their sin and the way that Jonathan did confront the sin of his, of his father Saul? Well, the, the story of Doeg should also teach us as, as Dustin just prayed to guard our tongues. As, as Dustin prayed, James calls it a world of unrighteousness, a restless evil full of deadly poison. He says it sets on fire the entire course of life. 
And we see the truth of this in the story of Doeg, both in his unwillingness to speak truth and his egging Saul on in his sin. And we see Doeg's tongue leads him to a place of greater sin where he would slaughter the priests of the Lord. It set on fire the course of his life. So brothers and sisters, do not let this happen to you. Guard your tongue. You don't always have to speak out, but when you do, speak lovingly and graciously and kindly to your wife, your kids, your friends, your coworkers. Be careful how you interact on social media and seek to speak what is true and right and just. Because just like Doeg, your words or, or sometimes even the lack thereof are revealers of your heart. They're revealers of where you are placing your confidence. And we do not want to have a foolish confidence like that of Doeg. That brings me to my, my second point, which is a certain end. A certain end. So back in, in Psalm 52, starting in verse 5, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Uh, so in these few verses, David confesses that Doeg's certain fate is eternal destruction. In response to Doeg's wickedness, God will one day break him down forever. He will tear him from his tent. He will lose his place of earthly comfort and reward. He will rip him down from his exalted position as one of the servants, one of the trusted servants of Saul. And in a moment, Doeg will be separated from these things in which he placed his trust. That day is coming. And not only that, he's going to lose his very life. He's going to be uprooted from the land of the living if he does not change. No matter what Doeg does to elevate his earthly position, he will not be able to prolong his days if he remains in his present wickedness. He has no hope of eternal life. It is why his boasting and why his trust in his riches is so foolish. He has no sure confidence. His feet have been set in slippery places. And so, friends, if, if you are here today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, if, if you recognize that you've never placed your hope or your confidence, what the Bible might call your faith in trust in the God who is in control of all things, well, this fate that awaits Doeg, this fate that David talks about for Doeg is the fate that awaits you as well. In this psalm, Doeg is a representative of all who would set themselves against the Lord, a representative of all who have rebelled against God in ways both large and small. Therefore, the certain end that he faces is the certain end of all who do not repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. And friends, being a rebel against God is not unique. It's not reserved for those who do something so evil as kill 85 priests of the Lord. The Bible makes it clear that all people are rebels. As, as Dustin prayed just a moment ago, even if we sin in small, what we see, think is small ways with our tongue. We are all sinners. We all lie, deceit, deceive, plot destruction, and love evil more than we love good. And the Bible also makes it clear that Jesus is going to return one day to judge the sin of all who have ever lived. And that is not a comforting thought. These are not comforting words that are spoken here to, to Doeg. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son Jesus to earth to pay the penalty for the sin of all who would repent and believe, all who set their confidence and their hope in Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he suffered unjustly, far more unjustly than David did, and he suffered unjustly at the hands of wicked men 
to the point of being cruelly and unjustly killed on a cross. But this blood of Jesus that was spilled unjustly by wicked men was spilled for all who would repent and believe. It was spilled that those who place their faith in him might not suffer the same fate that Doeg suffered here, but inherit eternal life. That we might not get the justice we deserve because Christ took our place. And so friends, don't have the foolish confidence of Doeg. Put your trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. Jesus is worthy of your faith. He proved it not only by enduring the injustice that he received while he was here on earth, the injustice of being crucified on the cross on behalf of sinners, the very ones who had rebelled against him, who had treated him the way that Doeg treated David and treated those priests of the Lord. Jesus also proved it by rising from the dead. And so if you've never placed your faith in him, your confidence in him, I urge you to do it today. Repent of your foolish confidence in other things, self-sufficiency, pride, deceit, whatever it is. Trade the certainty of being uprooted from the land of the living for the certainty of dwelling forever in the presence of God. It is worth it both now and for all eternity. So returning to Psalm 52, I want you to see that the certainty of God's judgment is really the theological truth that holds the psalm together. It's the reality of God's judgment and sovereignty that Doeg refuses to recognize. It leads him to greater degrees of wickedness, as we've already seen. His lack of fear of the Lord is what David leads to ask his opening question. In some sense, David is asking, Doeg, don't you know that God's judgment is coming? Can't you see that? And the reality, so the reality of God's judgment is, is also the truth to which David and all the righteous, those who have placed their faith in God, those who have placed their confidence in God, well, it's the truth that they're supposed to cling to. It's the truth that is to sustain the righteous and help them to avoid bitterness when they suffer unjustly. It's to help them avoid bitterness when trials come. They are to rejoice in God's faithfulness to his people. You know, understanding God's judgment helps us to better see his love and his mercy. It magnifies his steadfast love because we know that we deserve the same fate as as the wicked. So the fact that God is coming, he is going to judge, it helps magnify the steadfast love of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, I want you to see this truth that the certainty of God's judgment is supposed to be a source of encouragement to the people of God. A few weeks ago, Dustin preached about the precious and very great promises that God has given to his people. We see that in 2 Peter. Well, one of these promises is that one day Christ will return in judgment. There's a promise. It's a guarantee we have in Scripture. You know, David knew he was being treated unjustly by Saul and by Doeg. He was suffering. And in the midst of his suffering, what promise does he cling to? Well, it's the dual truths of the reality of God's judgment and the truth then of God's steadfast love. Now, I don't know if we think of God's judgment or his wrath in this way. It feels maybe a little bit uncomfortable to think of God's judgment as a source of encouragement. But it is one of the ways that the Bible speaks of God's judgment. Just listen to these passages. Psalm 37, 1 through 2. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Psalm 73 the, psalm conf- the psalmist confesses, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, what encouraged the psalmist? Why didn't he slip? We find the answer in verses 16 through 19. But then I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, or the end of the wicked. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Going on to the New Testament, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is even the example of Jesus, 1 Peter 1, 19 through 24. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus entrusted himself to the judgment of his father, and so can we. Even now, Jesus is waiting at the right hand of his father until his enemies are made a footstool. So brothers and sisters, if, if you find yourself today, if you found yourself in the past, or you find yourself in the future suffering, particularly unjust suffering for something you haven't even done wrong, you can wait too. And you can wait because you have the steadfast love of the Lord. As I say that, I do want to make clear that there are times not to wait. It's right and good to remove yourself from an environment of real or even threatened physical abuse. Some of you have had to do that. As Christians, we should desire to see justice here on earth. It's good to hold those who do wrong accountable for their actions. We're grateful for a justice system. But it's right and good still to take action to speak out and advocate for a just society. We just want to see God's justice here on earth. We just know we will never see it perfectly. But in most situations, the call to Christians is to wait on the Lord. We wait on him to act. We endure and we persevere with patience. And in all situations, we can have a heart that is waiting for God's promise of perfect justice. Even when we're frustrated and we don't see it in the way we want, we can have a heart that waits on God's promise of perfect justice, even in times where we are not waiting by action, when we're advocating, when we're removing ourselves, we can still have a heart that seeks to wait. We don't have to let our heart grow bitter. We can look to Christ. The Christians can endure and persevere with joy because they can entrust themselves to God who is given the promise that one day he will judge justly. We can rest in that. And I do want to be clear, even as we just talked about, that this is kind of a, a weird thing, maybe. It feels a little funny to say that we have the promise of God's judgment, and that can help us to rest in God's steadfast love. But I do want to be clear that though the coming day of God's judgment helps believers to persevere, it isn't something to delight in. You know, yes, David says the righteous will laugh at Doeg, they will one day laugh at the wicked, but I don't think it's a mocking or a, a vindictive laughter that the righteous have. I think it's more how one might laugh at the foolishness of another. If we go back to that illustration of the toddler driving a car into the garage, well, if, if you have young kids, you know what's likely to happen after a few times of your toddler driving that car with you. They think they can do it themselves, and they want to try by themselves. They want you to step out of the driver's seat and let them do it alone. You, you move over to the passenger seat, Dad, I got this. Uh, well, what will happen if you place your toddler in the driver's seat by himself? 
He's going to pretty quickly figure out that the car doesn't move simply because he puts his hands on the wheel. It does not go anywhere. Well, as parents, we laugh at this kind of foolishness. It's funny. You know, young kids overestimate their abilities in all sorts of ways, and we take great, great pleasure in seeing them do that. It's funny. Well, I think that's a little bit of the type of laughter described here. It's the laughter at the foolishness of Doeg and all the wicked who place their trust in something other than God, who think they are in control of their own destiny when it is God who is really controlling the wheel of history. There's going to come a day, they don't know when, when their pride, when their foolish confidence will come to an end. Their foolishness will be exposed as the righteous laugh. They're going to be humbled. So, brothers and sisters, God's judgment isn't to be a source of delight as we eagerly look forward to the wicked getting their just desert. We eagerly look forward to that person who is unjustly treating us, getting what's coming to them. No, that would be to arrogantly forget the mercy that God has shown to us. Indeed, the reality of God's judgment should spur our evangelism. I mean, God himself says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but his desire is that the wicked would turn from their ways and live. So the certainty of God's judgment frees the believer to love those, even those who hate them because we can rest in the fact that no matter what happens, one day all will be made right. Therefore, you brothers and sisters, let the certainty of God's coming judgment spur you to love others and urgently share the gospel with them. Pray your desire is not for their destruction, but for their repentance, that they would turn that they would live, that they would be counted with the righteous, that this fate that awaited Doeg is a fate that does not await them. And let the certain end of the wicked be an example to you. David says the righteous will see and fear. The righteous are to see the judgment to befall Doeg. They are to see it and they are to fear it. It's a call for the righteous. It's a call for you to persevere in your trust and confidence in the steadfast love of the Lord. This life may come with suffering and trials, but the alternative to trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord is that you be broken down forever, snatched from your tent, and uprooted from the land of the living. And we're to see and fear. We're to marvel at God's mercy and grace to us. We, otherwise, we will find ourselves one day humbled. Well, really, either way, we're going to find ourselves humbled, but we want to be humbled at God's mercy and grace to us and not humbled because we are ripped down from the exalted position in which we have placed ourselves. And that brings me to my third and final point, which is a quiet assurance, a quiet assurance. And this is what we see David exhibit in verses eight and nine. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Well, if we just remember the story from 1 Samuel, it's kind of hard to believe those are the words of someone on the run from a powerful king to whom he has done nothing but faithfully serve. But what, brothers and sisters, I want you to see that this quiet assurance of David is the fruit of his trust in God's steadfast love. He does not grow bitter. At this point in history, David has been anointed by Samuel. He knows that one day he is going to be king uh, so you might expect David to react kind of like Scar in The Lion King. You know, the lion Scar in The Lion King and burst into song and let Doag need, know that he needs to be prepared for the day of coming vengeance when David takes the throne, that David is going to become king and he is going to set what is wrong right. But that is not what David did. 
David had God's promise that he would become the king of Israel, but in a sense, that's not the promise that he is relying on here. He relied on the greater promise of God's steadfast covenant faithfulness and love of his people. A steadfast love that meant David could absolutely reply on the promise to be king, but more importantly, David could trust in the eternal preservation of the righteous, of God's care for his people. He can rest in the sovereignty and wisdom and divine judgment of God. He could rest in the fact that God would vindicate his own name, not David's name, but God would vindicate his own name by preserving the righteous. And brothers and sisters, this is the promise of the gospel. God has set his steadfast love on you before the foundation of the world. You have been planted like a green olive tree in the house of God. You have been adopted, redeemed, and given an inheritance that is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And when you understand this, the gospel is not just a source of future hope, though it certainly is that, but a present joy and present contentment. It's how we fight against bitterness, is seeing that we have been given God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. We don't need to let the mistreatment of others lead us to grow bitter. It's the fruit of righteousness. You know, David describes himself as a green tree, a fruit-bearing tree. That's what that picture is, a, a tree bearing fruit in the house of God. God planted him in his house and counted him among his people. He's abiding in the Lord and he is producing fruit, the fruit of kindness and gentleness and forgiveness rather than bitterness and wrath and anger. So what does this kind of abiding look like? You know, how do we abide in the Lord in the way that David talks about here? Uh, how do we take advantage of the fact that we've been planted in the house of God like a green olive tree? I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, the, I don't know if you've noticed these parallels between Psalm 52 and Psalm 1. But in some sense, it's as if Psalm 52 is Psalm 1 applied to a historical reality. Both contrast the righteous and the wicked and describe the coming judgment of God. But Psalm 1 gives the answer about what it looks like to abide with God, to be a green olive tree in God's house. It is to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. There is certainly more that could be said about what it looks like to abide in the Lord, but not less. You know, brothers and sisters, to avoid bitterness and cling to the promises of God, we must immerse ourselves in them. You must immerse yourselves in them. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. This is the fruit that was pr produced in David's life. It was a quiet assurance. And we know this because following this incident with Doeg, David has a couple of opportunities to kill King Saul as Saul pursued him to kill him. Saul is acting wickedly. He is unjustly persecuting David. David has an opportunity to take matters into his own hands but he doesn't do it. He doesn't take them. He trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, go, to go back to the Lion King illustration, it's gonna be corny, but he could just wait to be king. As David writes in verse nine, he was content to thank the Lord for what the Lord had done for him and to wait, to wait for God to vindicate his own name, for wait to God to act according to his own character as the Lord demanded and to save his covenant people and to save David. God knew that he would act, or David knew that God would act. You know, I think it's striking, especially considering some of the other Psalms, even that David wrote, that David doesn't act, ask God to act here. I don't think he would have been wrong to ask God to act. I don't think that would have been a, a wicked prayer or a bad prayer, but he's content to wait. He knows that one day God is going to act and he is content to wait. In the meantime, he's content to align himself with the righteous, to be in, in the presence of the godly and wait for the day that God will act. He has a quiet assurance in the Lord. 
You know, David has the type of assurance maybe like the winners of a professional wrestling match might have. Not like Olympic wrestling, like the WWE stuff, the fake stuff. Uh, you know, these guys, the match is scripted. They come into the ring. They know the result has been determined. They know they are going to win. It is assured. Well, this is like the kind of confidence David has. He knew the end. He knew of Doeg's certain destruction and his certain salvation. And why? Well, it's because David had a confidence in the character of the Lord. He trusted in the steadfast love of God. And so as we close, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, is this the type of confidence that you have in the Lord? Do you have this type of quiet assurance in the Lord? You know, we know the end too. Let's go read the book of Revelation. We know what awaits the wicked, and we know what awaits those who have put their trust in the Lord. So like those individuals in the Lance Armstrong documentary, if you were to be interviewed about the unjust treatment you had received in this life, what would we see? Would we see evidence of the bitterness that has eaten at you for years? Or would we see a quiet assurance in the steadfast love of the Lord? If you aren't sure of that answer, take time this afternoon to thank God for his mercy, to thank God for his steadfast love of you, for his forgiveness, that he has extended to you, even in light of your unjust treatment of him. Pray that God would give you a reminder of his steadfast love. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do come, and uh, Lord, we read a story like this. And uh, Father, we can be so quick uh, to side with David and to put ourselves in David's camps. And yet, uh, Lord, we know uh, that if this is a picture of our relationship with you, we are doeg. Lord, we have acted unjustly. We have rebelled against you. Uh, but God, for uh, some reason that is hard for us to fathom, and that we really can't fathom, you have set your steadfast love on all those who have repented and believed. You have planted us like a green olive tree in your house. Lord, I pray that you would renew within us, even today, that you would renew within us a gratefulness for your steadfast love, an understanding of it, that we will rest in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.